Harvard Divinity School. Gut and Other Knowledges in Religions of the African Diaspora, February 23rd, 2022. Good afternoon and welcome to our Nosiologies event. My name is Giovanna Parmigiani and I'm the host of this series organized within the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at the CSWR here at Harvard Divinity School. This series focuses on ways of knowing that are often labeled as non-rational, traditionally referred to as noses in Western philosophical and religious traditions, and often understood in contraposition to science. These ways of knowing are becoming more and more influential in contemporary societies, popular culture, and academic research. Going beyond dichotomies such as body and mind, ordinary and extraordinary, reason and experience, and matter and spirit. This series will host scholars of different disciplines and practitioners interested in exploring and expanding the boundaries of what counts as knowledge today. So it is with immense pleasure that I introduce our today's guest, uh, Professor Elizabeth Perez. Um, Elizabeth Perez is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her first book, A Religion in the Kitchen, Cooking, Talking, and the Making of Black Atlantic Traditions, uh, was awarded a 2017 Clifford Gibb Prize in the Anthropology of Religion and received honorable mention for the 2019 Barbara T. Christian Literary Award. Professor Perez has published widely in scholarly journals and edited volumes. And in particular, I will recommend her recent publication, The Black Atlantic Metaphysics of Azealia Banks, Rohik's Womanism and the Congo Crossroads, uh, published on the journal Hypatia. So today, Professor Perez and I will have a conversation on gut and other knowledges in religions of the African diaspora. In particular, we will address the practices of embodied knowledge production and transmission in such Afro-diasporic religions such as Cuban Lukumi, Haitian Voodoo, and Brazilian Candomblé. We will discuss some insights from her first book on sacred food preparation with current scholarship and gut feelings, knowing and beings in Black Atlantic traditions. Distinguishing between intellectual comprehension and the types of understanding that practitioners derive from ritual experience, Dr. Perez explained, uh, explains that the connections between the belly and the brain have only begun to be explored in Black Atlantic traditions. So thank you, Elizabeth, for being here today and welcome to HDS. I am a fan of your work, as you know, <laughs> and so are my students with whom I read your book in the past, Religion in the Kitchen. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And I'm so grateful uh, to you and to Charlie Stang and everyone else at the Center for the Study of World Religions for inviting me. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. So let's start from the book, um, The Religion in the Kitchen. So do you want to tell us and to our audience, um, what's the book about and how did you begin to work with food and the senses? Yeah, so um, the book is, well, why don't I just show you some pictures? That's always my default, whether I'm lecturing um, on online in a class is to just um, show some, some images. So um, to sort of describe Black Atlantic religions, for those of us who are not too familiar with them, um, they are traditions that um, crystallized during the transatlantic slave trade. And so 
Um, you can see the arrows moving from West and Central Africa to the Caribbean, to Latin America, and all of the different ethnic groups that you can't quite read on this map because it is a Zoom meeting, but um, the way that these traditions formed has all together to do with the ethnic origins of the different cultural groups that were enslaved and brought to the Americas um, during this time period, roughly um, from 1500 to um, 1870, we can say maybe 1860. Um, in some of my classes, and of course you might read online that these traditions are called syncretic, um, meaning that they bring together different traditions. Normally the default understanding is that they're a combination of Christianity and some Western Central African um, form of beliefs and practices. Um, maybe a more generative way to think about that syncretism is that uh, enslaved peoples were actually taking from different African ethnic groups and synthesizing their beliefs and practices to create um, new and really generative uh, forms of worship. And so there's a, a nice color coding in this map where you can see, generally speaking, some of um, the sort of source groups and areas for these traditions and then, you know, how they played out um, in the Caribbean and Latin America. And there's so many, um, I'll just flash quickly um, to also thinking about traditions like Hoodoo and Conjure that aren't normally classified as Afro-diasporic religions, but that I would argue, and someone like uh, Yvonne Schroen might argue as well, um, should really be classed in with Lukumi, Candomblé, and Vodou. Um, so the book, Religion in the Kitchen, Cooking, Talking, and the Making of These Traditions, um, I did not start out wanting to study food preparation for my project. Um, I found myself in the incredibly fortunate position um, of being able to first uh, study what was really dominant in the literature before I started my dissertation re research. So drumming rituals, uh, divination, possession, um, thinking about the different ways that um, practitioners have expressed their, their beliefs and practices um, over, well, the, the amount of time that we have the scholarship for, which is about um, the past century. But within that, there was really no place that was given to food preparation. And um, I mentioned speaking with you a couple of days ago that food is often mentioned in the documents about these traditions, but there's the passive voice that's used, that food was made, it was placed on the table. Um, and so my question was, well, I mean, who is doing um, the making of the food? And what does the food do? What, is, what does the food itself do? And so this is a beautiful image of a table that's been set um, in the Dominican tradition of 21 divisions, sometimes called voodoo, um, in the Dominican Republic. And it evokes you know, some of the variety, some of the um, vitality of what food is and does in these traditions. And uh, I was also thinking about the fact that um, appetite has really not been elaborated as a um, really vital and uh, reliable source for knowledge in the Western intellectual tradition, thanks to these gentlemen here. Uh, I've got Thomas Aquinas, Immanuel Kant, David Hume, um, and Hegel, 
whose writings may be familiar to the audience, um, associate appetite very much with the nether regions, um, judging for the most part that uh, the appetite is a kind of primal or, or more primitive aspect of human experience and that an encounter with food or an encounter with taste, it doesn't really um, allow for a kind of objective judgment um, about morality or aesthetics because it is so subjective. I'm very um, happy if I can jump in that you're mentioning yeah. this because um, I'm teaching a course this semester in religion, materiality, and the senses. And with my students, we've been addressing this, um, this, you know, hierarchy of the senses that we are, you know, uh, used to think um, and uh, as natural. Uh, so thank you for mentioning that. I they will be very happy, <laughs> my students. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's and that's really you know that's why food was was not at the forefront of my mind. I was incredibly fortunate to um, find a a open door at the home of um, the folks whose images I'm showing here, um, Ashabi Mosley and Tunde Mosley. I, that's what I call them in my book, um, on the South side of Chicago. And, uh, I thought that I might be doing work on some of those things that I mentioned on, on music, on, on prayers, on divination, but indeed it only took, um, one or two visits to realize how, uh, central a role, um, food plays. And so this is an altar. It's a sort of a double altar. I have the image in my book of, um, two people, who have been initiated together. This is the one year anniversary of their initiation. And you can see a lot of fruit at the base of this altar, but what you don't see as clearly is all the cooked food, the puddings, um, the uh, candies that have been made, homemade from scratch for the deities called Orishas. And so my book has really centrally to do with, with these Orishas, these deities, but what I'm arguing for which was a bit unfashionable and I haven't been called out as often as I thought I would be for adopting a kind of broadly comparative um, approach and saying that, well, actually, if we look at the Loa in Haitian Vodou or we look at the Orishas in Candomblé, we see a very similar relationship. Not just that food plays an analogous, almost identical role, but that it also has the same role in, in shaping personhood um, and ideas about the body. Um, and, you know, as we'll go on to talk about uh, knowing. Um, and so the Orishas all have their favorite foods. Um, they have their personalities are shaped around their literal tastes, what, what they want to see, what they want to smell. Um, and then sort of that idea of, of sight and smell kind of cohere with this, this understanding that they do taste, they do consume in a sense. Um, that they have senses in a way, in the same way that we do. And um, that kind of, you know, the simile uh, of them having senses like we do um, is really not a metaphor. You know, it, 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 it's a, it becomes a reality, especially when people get possessed. And when people mount the Orishas, they quite literally then will be eating the food that has been put out for them. Um, but there's an incredibly painstaking process uh, leading up to that point um, where 
there is a classification of different objects and substances, for example, here, um, different sacrificial animals that have had to be prepared, that have had to be cleaned, that have had to be cooked in specific ways. Um, these foods actually, th this is a photograph that doesn't um, appear in my book um, because, you know, in part because of, of the questions that I could raise that I can't really address. Um, but you can see the way that the foods have been separated. It's actually for human consumption. People would be approaching this food um, after an initiation at a kind of banquet that's been laid out for the community to sort of, in, in some ways, um, in the middle, what's called the middle day of an initiation to uh, celebrate the ordination of a priest in the Lukumi tradition. So I write a lot, as you know, about plucking, um, haptics, um, tactility. I was interested in getting into those areas once I realized, you know, what my project was about, um, thinking about the senses that don't as often get highlighted. Um, and this illustration shows the butchering process. Um, again, this is a, a marvelous image by um, Tammy Jo Urban that shows where um, the birds at least will be cut in order to be butchered properly. And so um, I move in the book from sort of a discussion of taxonomy and classification, kind of tacking back and forth between intellectual labor and manual labor. Um, and so I think that that kind of covers the first part and then the talking part of the book um, focuses on speech genres mm -hmm. and the way that elders relate information and they share their knowledge about who the Orishas are, how they work in the world, what is their relationship to human beings. Um, and so often this happens in, in the spaces of food preparation. Um, I also describe a bit how it's, it's a queer space in a sense, because it's not only been cisgender women who have been at the helm in the kitchen, um, but a very many generations of gay men who have also um, been the ones who have been the, the chefs who have been calling the shots in the kitchen as to how things are going to look and taste and who's doing what. Um, and so I wanted to put a spotlight on them because they aren't really acknowledged as being that important. No, that's fantastic. And one of the great contributions of, of your book, I think. And you were involved in the during your field work in the preparation, right? You were in the kitchen, right? Do you want to share some, you know, anecdotes maybe of your, you know, being there? Indeed. Um, and so I, I was in a position to be helping, to be, um, to be assisting. And again, with, it's with enormous gratitude that I think about the way that I was invited into the community. Some people have asked why, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in part, it may be my parents are Cuban. And so sort of coming from at least a working knowledge of experientially the, the sort of um, way that, that Cuban religious traditions work, even though nobody in my family was directly initiated, it was my family is very much involved with Espiritismo <laughs> um, in the southeastern part of the island. Um, but nevertheless, maybe that's um, one of the reasons why I was able to participate at first. Um, since that field work, though, I did go on to be initiated in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so now, honestly, I do the same work. Um, I'm still in a position of learning, of trying to follow um, what the elders are asking. Um, and I mean, this is a very rich space for me. And so I 
return as often as I can now having two smaller children. Um, I was recently, let's see, last summer, I attended and was able to assist in an initiation that was the first post-COVID initiation for me. Um, and that was a really intense experience because you can see in these pictures, nobody's masked. People are not social distancing. Um, you know, you're rubbing against people um, because, you know, even, even when there are houses with a lot of space, the kind, the nature of the work, it really, um, demands proximity to other people. And it's a collective effort to make a saint or to crown someone, which is to say, to initiate someone. Um, and so, you know, that first initiation after, you know, everyone had been vaccinated, but still, you know, we, we were still barely out of lockdowns, um, it made me much more aware of the air around me, of the, the odors specifically, um, of the, that undertaking, um, and how difficult discomfort makes it to um, perform the kind of cognitive operations that are being, are being asked of you. And so this is a, a couple of paragraphs from the book um, where I'm quoting Charles Malamud. Um, what does it mean to begin? He's talking about sacrifice and what sacrifice teaches. Um, what is the relationship between parts and wholes, right? What does it mean to measure? Um, and Oshunleye, who was um, one, of, one of my um, interlocutors and my elders, um, asked in the kitchen, how can you separate the part from the whole and still have it be the whole? And so these are the kinds of philosophical discussions that people are having um, as they, they try to balance their own responses, their own bodily sensations, and then knowing what the, what the situation has to exact from them in order for something to be done properly, in order for this food to be moral matter as I describe it here. That's fantastic. And it's very interesting that some, you know, your experience post COVID. And I was wondering, maybe uh, this is a question that, you know, a little bit weird, but um, did the Orishas um, have uh, opinions on masking? So is, was someone possessed and, you know, received some sort of indications about the changes of situations? That I did, I have not seen um, in my encounters. Um, over maybe the last year and a half. And when I say post-COVID, I by no means um, want to suggest that it's it's post is in the sense of after is <laughs> sort of post as in, you know, we're still, we're still in the soup as it were. Um, but I mean, there has been every effort as far as I know in communities of Afro-Diasporic practice to observe masking guidelines. Um, however, it, it can it can be very tricky specifically because let's say just taking this tradition, um, the kind of primordial vital energy called Ashe that flows through the universe that is activated um, by herbs, that is activated by song, that is activated um, by work, by labor, it also flows through the breath. It's in one of its most concentrated forms in the breath and in speech. And you can think of, you know, breath is also including saliva. And we've all seen, um, you know, those animations of, of the way that when you speak, um, you know, those uh, molecules are projected into the air. And so 
there are ritual moments in which it's not optimal to be masked. So it, it is a very tricky set of set of issues and, and people did get initiated and have been getting initiated all through this pandemic, but um, many of whom initiated for health. I mean, that's always the case, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of communities tried to um, restrict what they were doing to just the, the bare minimum. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating about how you describe um, being called in this book, in your book, is that you don't really have many options once once you're called, right? Um, uh, so I will just call you, and, and then you find yourself, um, right? And well, what I what I'm trying to think about, and and that I guess that ties in a little bit with um, sort of the subject matter for today is that there is uh, what I call an ethnosymptomatology that is involved in acquiring the interpretive frameworks that conduce to subjectification, that make you a religious subject. Um, And what that means, the ethnosymptomatology piece is about coming to understand your body as a medium, as, as media for the spirits to communicate with you. And so people coming into the tradition who are kind of in a state of ignorance about who are these deities and and what am I doing here? And what are they associated with? They don't realize that, but it's really part of the subjectivation process when people say, oh, I have a headache. It must be, you know, obatala, or I keep stubbing my toe, you know, and and feet being associated, at least in this tradition with elegua. Well, it's that elegua wants something from me or my stomach associated with Oshun. And so... Um, there is a a really, um, indispensable role that the body plays in learning about the Orishas, because it's when people start to see their bodies as being subject to the dominion and to the governance and ownership of the spirits that they can say, oh, I've, I've been called. I have a calling. I have a vocation that, that cannot be denied. That's fantastic. And I think it's a good transition to your actually current research, right? Because you um, you seem to have um, um, tra- transitioning from your first book to gut knowledge and to maybe a more prominent role of the body, uh, also not only of human bodies in, in knowledge. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I was trying to remember when I started writing about gut feelings and I think it was as the result of being invited for the 2018 American Anthropological Association meeting for a panel on um, social death and vital relations Mm -hmm. and thinking about kind of theories of social death and what role kinship has played in the African diaspora and particularly in religions. And so I knew that I wanted to write about um, the feelings in the gut that come up in the kitchen that I sort of wrote up a little bit, you know, as you're working, you feel maybe nauseous or you're hungry and the nausea is kind of battling the hunger um, until you can get to a point where you can go somewhere to eat. Um, But then also I, I was, 
thinking about the number of times that the stomach and the intestines are mentioned in divination verses, which was really something that I only realized after I myself was initiated, um, you know, reflecting on um, divination verses that um, had, had come up for me and, and wondering um, why are, have those not been theorized to a greater ex extent? And so I wrote a piece kind of tying, um, gut feelings and reactions, mm -hmm. uh, to feelings of kinship and, and especially sort of that, that automatic sense of, um, accountability that one has for members of religious communities as families, because, um, once people become initiated, they do normatively, um, begin to regard the, the people in that community as, as siblings, um, or as, as mother and father figures. And I started to think about, you know, the role that the gut has in creating that sense that of bonding, um, and affinity to the extent that you would go to the ends of the earth for those people. If they asked you to, you would, you know, get on a plane and fly halfway around the country if they needed you. Um, what is that about? How does that how does that happen? It can't be purely cognitive, right? And so um, from gut feelings, I started thinking about the beings that are associated with the stomach and intestines and, and just really the whole gastrointestinal tract in Afro-diasporic religions. Um, often it's trickster spirits um, who uh, have sort of control of the stomach. But, you know, very often there's, there's not a, a hard and fast distinction between those interoceptive sensations that we have, and they're not e easily localizable. Um, you know, it's hard to say, is it, are you having menstrual cramps or are you having stomach cramps, right? There's a kind of this, it's a zone of, of opacity um, where it's, it's hard to know. And that's precisely, I think, why they come up so often in divination verses is that people go to diviners because they're having, they can't put their finger on what's wrong they can't describe. And, and this is a challenge too with doc, with medical doctors is that, you know, what the, the number of things that could be wrong with you is vast. And if you can't articulate what those things are, where to pinpoint the pain, um, you're facing a problem. And so, um, from gut feelings there, there was sort of, you know, a train of thought, then gut beings, um, thinking about the way also that leukemia in particular, uh, locates its origins in the ancestors bringing some of their ritual sacra to Cuba in their stomachs. There are stories where literally um, one of the first babalaos in Cuba, he brought his divination tools to Cuba in his stomach. Um, that other uh, founding figures brought, brought consecrated stones to Cuba. And so how, how do we make sense of these stories? And so that was sort of the genesis for a short book that I'm working on um, for Cambridge University Press about the gut and tying all of these different themes to knowledge and knowing. Um, and these really common sense, almost ubiquitous messages that we get about trusting your gut or following your gut, knowing your gut, et cetera, et cetera. These are all over social media you know, memes about, you know, knowing yourself, trusting your intuition, but what does that really mean? And so um, in the end, I'm also trying to figure out how much of, 
of what I'm talking about involves speech genres mm -hmm. and conventional ways of talking about emotion um, and appeal to something beyond reason by pointing to the gut and how much is what I'm talking about really to do with actual sensations that people are feeling that they, that they might not be able to verbalize. That's fantastic. Um, but indeed, um, um, following what you just said, there's um, a subjectification that happens through um, a different engage, learning how to differently engage with one's own body. Mm -hmm. um, and so out of this, I want to have a couple of questions. One is more general. What yes. do your informants think, interlocutors, let's say, um, think about what counts as knowledge? Um, and maybe for you also as an anthropologist studying in this kind of things, what counts as knowledge? And also, that's a kind of personal though, you, you can decide not to, <laughs> to answer it if you want, if you don't want. Um, did your research um, change the way you engage, learn to engage with your body and with food, personally? Knowledge. So, um, for many, I won't say all of my interlocutors because we're, we're getting into a, a very, uh, you know, difficult area, right? Because as an, as an ethnographer, you can only really know what people tell you, I mean, and what you can observe at firsthand. Um, but there are, there are different um, realms in which knowledge becomes a kind of salient concept. Um, one of these realms was addressed by uh, Diana de Espiritu Santo, who I believe spoke with you um, about Espiritismo. And so I've worked with this community that practices Espiritismo since you know, the genesis of my research. It is not that prominent in the book, um, but I have written about the way that knowledge in the spaces of spiritist ritual, for example, it become, the, that knowledge is constructed collaboratively um, that knowledge is not something that is, is the individual property of one of the participants, but that people come to an understanding of um, a sensation, a, a piece of, of information, of um, a vision maybe that somebody's having in their minds, that, that it, it is actually knowledge, right? And um, in, in those spaces, um, as uh, others have written, knowledge is kind of considered to be a substance in a sense, and a substance that has transformative effects. That once, once one um, has not has that knowledge, that it it can actually create other sorts of effects. It's not merely a, a truth claim. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, if we're thinking about, for example, traditions like Haitian Vodou, the the concept of connaissance or knowledge in Lukumi. Um, it's very different from, in the Western intellectual tradition, um, what we see as knowledge, which is, this, which is novelty, okay? For us to, to be knowledge producers in the corporate university, that means they're coming up with new ideas, they're coming up with new pathways. In Afro-Diasporic religions, knowledge is about 
ancestrality. It's about the, the connecting with the past. It's about knowing how to do things in the appropriate way, not necessarily knowing particular things. It's not propositional knowledge. Um, and, and this is an important point because these are not, I, I mentioned, you know, quote unquote, beliefs and practices earlier, um, but these really are not traditions that have creeds. They don't have, you know, lists of belief. Sometimes people believe really quite even within the same community, very heterogeneous things but they know how to do and that's really what's prized um, and so creating the type of body and providing the sort of corporeal experience is really necessary um, to be able to pass on knowledge uh, to future generations and so um, the sense of knowledge too you can kind of get a sense of of what that means by thinking about how elders are referred to especially elders who have passed on they, in Spanish, they're referred to as ciencias, mm -hmm. that they are sciences. Um, so people will sometimes mourn the death of someone by saying, you know, que falleció una ciencia, like you've lost a science that was in the world. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get on a tangent about kind of Shastric knowledge or other uh, understandings of knowledge that are much more book-based, um, but I think you can understand that, you know, in, in these communities, there's a combination of embodied knowledge, intellectual labor and comprehension, plus a lot of memorization that can be wrote. Um, also muscle memory is really important to thinking about um, what are the different aspects of knowledge. And divination verses are also full of um, musings about knowledge, about limitations to knowledge. Um, sometimes Shango will say, don't, don't use the term I know, or like the phrase I know, because that will limit you intellectually. Just do not say that. Um, it's said that nobody can know Oshun, the Orisha Oshun. Um, so there, there's a way that there's a kind of reinforcement of putting um, of being able to define knowledge, of being able to, to say that you grasp something because that, that means that you have stopped striving to, to know more. That's fantastic. And I think there's a lesson to learn for us anthropologists and scholars here around what counts uh, as knowledge for us uh, today. There is, and you did ask about sort of for me as, a, as a ethnographer, what is knowledge? And honestly, I mean, I feel that it has to do really with data, <laughs> with data collection and making an argument. So for me, as someone who's trying to, to make arguments in my work, I'm thinking about questions of evidentiality, of what can count as evidence, of what will be persuasive to my audience. I'm always thinking about rhetoric mm -hmm. and rhetorical forms. Um, and so, and it's, it's not maybe a satisfying answer to those of us who think that knowledge there, that there is an ultimate knowledge that is objective, that is neutral. I just don't buy into those notions. Um, and absolutely being in this kind of milieu has shaped me and how I think about um, what, what human beings are capable of, what I myself um, am capable of doing. And um trying to not confuse being able to verbally articulate something with having a kind of gut knowledge. 
um, because those are very two different things. I think that this point about language is a very important one. Um, we tend to uh, associate knowledge with what is, you know, um, linguistically, you know, describable. And, you know, the ineffable is, sounds a little bit, you know, weird to us, but it's indeed a place of knowledge. Um, and so I think this reminder, it's a very important one um, for us. Did it change somehow the way after your initiation, the way you approach your own experience as a form of knowledge for your research? Ah, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and how I would love to tell you to be able to open that up a little bit more. Um, I guess it increased my sense of, of responsibility um, and accountability to a particular, not just, you know, the university as or the, the academic community, but kind of relocating my primary responsibility in some ways. Um, being to my elders and the community of my initiation. And in some ways there's in the book, I, I make it very clear. This is not being written by an initiated person. I have no authority. So mm -hmm. take or leave, <laughs> you know, you can, if, if my arguments are convincing to you, that's fantastic. If not, uh, you know, there are a lot of other really wonderful books to read. Um, and so at this point, I feel in a way um, that I would like to build you know, from a slightly different standpoint, but again, I'm not, I'm still not in a position of authority. I still really, am not, um, calling the shots in any way, shape or form. Um, and I, I don't even think that's a humbling thing. I just, I, I think that, um, it's very special and a privileged position to be in, to be able to learn from the people in the spaces that, um, give me access. No, that's fantastic. And as a scholar who as well decided to, you know, join um, so at least some of the practices that I encountered in my work um, after my field work, um, I do feel uh, this um, dimension of the responsibility that um, comes with, with, with your positionality of having been granted such, you know, important access to life words and experiences and lives that um, um, of my interlocutors. So uh, I think it's a very important to remind everybody that, you know, inhabiting those spaces as an author is always a gift that we've been given. Um, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to add this. It is, it is. And, and now that you mentioned positionality, I mean, I think it also ties into um, the data collection piece in the sense that one's gender and sexual identity, one's racial and ethnic identity, your class position, um, it, it gives you affordances, it gives you entree into certain kinds of spaces and understandings, and it also limits. And I think it behooves us to understand um, that the the author or the or the narrator you know may be reliable and yet be missing a lot mm -hmm. um be, because of the spaces they're in and so it's um a challenge always to keep that at the forefront and to keep reminding the reader who you know may be kind of swept along as you're telling the story 
Um, and maybe forgetting that, um, you know, you're fallible and that, you know, if it were an African-American person doing this research, it would be different. If it were a Chinese-American person or a Chinese-Cuban person, that would be necessarily a different story and a different data set that you would come up with. Um, also to mention in terms of knowledge, um, positionality is important in the sense that the knower in these traditions is not a, a unitary individual. Um, and so we can, we can sort of think about, well, how does knowledge change if we're, we're not sure, you know, what self is the self that knows any given things? Because in these traditions, the, the self is multiple. It's not individual, but uh, individual, but what McKim Marriott calls individual, um, that we're talking about porous selves that have other spirits, um, whether they're spirit guides, orishas, luas, ancestors, you know, that at any point can become dominant in a person's everyday, you know, communication with someone else or being in the world. And so, you know, one of those selves can know something that is not available to those other selves. Um, and again, you know, paramount is the experience of possession where the self is completely displaced um, by that of a spirit or an ancestor. So that also throws some complications um, into the mix. Absolutely. And that's a very, another very important remark that I would argue it's also my experience in, you know, ethnography within, with magic practitioners and um, um, although, of course, uh, in southern Italy or, you know, in Europe, um, but this for another conversation. <laughs> so I have some final questions. These are more geared toward my students who, as I said, um, are uh, taking this course in um, religion, materiality and the senses. And so I would like to ask you some questions as a, an ethnographer who is interested in the anthropology of the senses and in sensory ethnography in many ways, because you have been, you know, in the kitchen for much of your um, field work. So um, what do you think is the role of the senses in, in anthropological knowledge? Right, the role of the senses. Um... I mean, it's a good question because in, in a way you could turn it around, like what is the opposite of the senses, right? Would that be the brain <laughs> or um, the senses? I mean, obviously means of data collection that, you know, we have, we have available to us a different interfaces, a surfaces that can be impressed um, so as to gain knowledge of the world or certain kinds of feelings and emotions about the world. Now, whether we operationalize those emotions and those feelings is another question. You know, it depends on what kind of argument we want to make. Um, but I think that we have to recognize what, what you mentioned before the sensory hierarchy that for example, our culture is very much based on the visual that there is a kind of primacy of the visual, not, not only in, in our culture, but in many cultures throughout history, um, where like seeing becomes a, a kind of, you know, it's at the pinnacle of kind of the senses. Um, and historically, there are all kinds of rationales. You know, if we look at Buddhist texts or Hindu texts, they tell us different things about, um, you know, why, or in Jane's, in, in Jane texts, why it is, and it's, it's, you know, one of the rationales can be that because vision um, 
it is so powerful. You know, we can see things at a far distance, but we can't smell things from a far distance. Maybe that's the reason why um, visuality is, is sort of the prime sense. Um, but nevertheless, these kind of other uh, less emphasized senses, not just taste, but haptics, tactility, again, interoceptive sensation, prioroceptivity, you know, our movement through the world. How does our body know, um, you know, how far something is or how we can move through space? You know, these are all senses that are really worth elaborating. Um, and I think that maybe the role of the senses then in field work is to guide us maybe toward, um, you know, in, in the most ideal way of thinking about it towards, you know, what our passion might be, what we could be really captivated by or enthralled by in our research. I mean, ultimately, you know, the senses should give us some joy. Yes, that's, that's, that's very, that's a very um, interesting take. And also, I can, if I can mention, you, you briefly mentioned how sight and smell, for example, in your fieldwork work together. And so also this space of how, what we think about discrete senses interact and build something new or um, let us engage with what is in front of us in different ways. I think it's something that stems out of your book in a very clear way. Um, I will, however, um, give Loic Waquan his due. I read Body and Soul Notebooks of an Apprentice Boxer um, when I was in grad school, and it had a huge effect on me. So thinking about, um, you know, for senses, you could substitute habitus and this understanding of, you know, how, how can our habitus be transformed to become a tool for research? Um, Ruth Bahar's work um, in anthropology as well. Yvonne Daniel, who is a scholar of dance. These are sort of, you know, more, you know, proximate um, scholars who I think really, you know, taught me to see or taught me to smell and hear and feel um, in a scholarly way. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there is a sense for me that um, the senses are, indispensable but we we want to be able to figure out you know how how do we harness um the most powerful combination of them for our work and there there is this kind of uh, metaphor of synesthesia you know that idea of different senses coming together that i think waquant bahar paul stoller um works with wonderfully well in their work and it makes for what stoller has called sensuous ethnography mm -hmm. Um, which is a goal that if, you know, the more you think about the intersensory, if you prefer, as David Howes would prefer, um, that it makes not just for better research, but, you know, better narrative as much as we can capture what our senses tell us in our work. Absolutely. Then what would be, would be your recommendation for students interested in, you know, embarking on this uh, journey of um, research and engaging with the senses? Um, ethnographically oh sort of advice about sort of how to how to take flight on this path um that's a great question i mean reading some poetry would be a good idea read the poetry of martin espada 
and poets who are really engaged with the senses because they they are going to be the poets who might sort of spark understandings of the importance of certain situations, certain combinations of feelings, um, as well as scholarly work. And I think, I mean, this is the, the importance for me of the humanities alongside the social sciences, because um, it, it can't just be that we're reading or we're engaging with scholarly ideas and people. Um, we have to somehow attend to, well, you know, what, what are the artworks that provoke something in us? What is the writing that really brings us to life, that gives us a feeling of being alive? And if, if we've kind of been attentive, observant participants in our own lives, I think that will make us better scholars. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have that many novel recommendations in terms of who to read. Um, you can't do better than Zora Neale Hurston and Catherine Dunham in some ways for just foundational work that focuses a laser in some ways on the senses. And in fact, was not appreciated in its time precisely because it was so suffused with sensory information that was not considered knowledge of an intellectual kind that was not sufficiently um, objective or neutral. Ruth Landis's work, for example, um, was denigrated for the same reason. That's, that's fantastic. I think, um, thank you so much for these indications. I think that my students will very much benefit from them. Um, I want to ask a question from our audience today, and then I have a final one about your current and future research. So Olga E. Turcotte asks, uh, the idea of the banquet exists in almost all traditions across cultures and eras. So does the concept of fasting which usually precedes the banquet. Can you please comment on these two, banquet and fast, within the context of the religions of the African diaspora? Thanks. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, so one of the books that was so, well, the work that was influential to me as a college student was Carolyn Walker Bynum's work um, and Holy Feast, Holy Fast. And I kind of, you know, maybe it was among the first work that I read that was both scholarly and historical, focused on gender and sexuality, and also so rich with description. Um, and so, I mean, we can think about the way that food in a blanket is a symbol of plenitude, of abundance, of like the cornucopia, um, in some ways, standing for plenty in, in a very general sense. And so, I mean, I, you know, we, and that tracks through many different kinds of religious texts or, you know, documentary texts, if we want to um, look at those texts as well. We always want to think about power though. We, we want to think about gift exchange um, for whom is the banquet being given, you know, whose tastes are being privileged, right? Um, it, you know, no banquet is going to have everything and it, it, every banquet is going to be pitched to the taste of kind of like a particular imagined palette. And I think that's, you know, where we can start kind of unpacking and thinking about power relations, um, in these kinds of, of scenarios, you know, that's quite obvious actually with fasting, right. Is that there is an imperative to, with, to, um, withhold sustenance for a particular purpose, um, and often if, you know, we unpick those, those purposes are going to be quite ideological, whether they result in the creation of kind of idealized body, 
um, in more secular kind of, um, you know, spaces. Um, or if you think about the way that before initiation rituals, you know, before the banquet that I was talking about on the middle day, um, you know, you also have quite a bit of fasting going on um, by the, the person who's being initiated. Even you can think about when people are working in the kitchen, they are kind of having to fast a lot of the time and, you know, they're, they're encouraged to eat. It's not the kind of fasting where, you know, there's an active withholding of food. Um, folks are always saying, go eat something, go eat something, you know, eat something now because later you won't be able to kind of a thing. Um, but there, there is an ideology at play there. And so, um, I mean, the, there are so many ideas that come to mind and I'll just throw in one last thing is um, we want to think about the way Robertson Smith in his lectures on the religions of this religion of the Semites um, kind of opened up the communal meal um, in a very early moment in the history of religions as kind of the or ritual um, thinking, especially about, you know, the Roman Catholic Eucharist. And so this kind of Eucharistic banquet, this Eucharistic meal is at the basis of so many of our understandings of religion. That's very true. Thank you for this um, answer. Uh, my last question. So what are you currently working on uh, beyond uh, the, um, the work you mentioned on gut feel and gut knowledge? And yes, what's in your uh, pipeline? So what, right, what is, what is in the pipeline? So, um, I, I am hoping that uh, the gut, a Black Atlantic elementary tract, um, will see publication at some point in this year, in the next couple of years. Um, I am also, my next project um, sort of centrally involves Black and Latinx transgender religious practitioners. And I was fortunate enough to receive an NEH summer stipend this summer to kind of move that project a little bit further along although I'm still doing a couple of interviews um, and hopefully that will be the full length next monograph. Um, and I would ask people to look out for, there's gonna be a piece in the imminent frame online um, that kind of in some ways recapitulates the article about Azalea Banks that you mentioned, um, Harlem born rapper and provocateurs, um, Azalea Banks, and kind of thinking about you know, who can be a philosopher, who can claim to be doing philosophy and what kinds of predecessors we can think um, of Azalea Banks as having Fantastic. in her metaphysical speculations. That's fascinating and important work. So I'm looking forward to be able to reading it. And uh, I think it's time to wrap up now. So I thank you very much, Elizabeth, for your participation and wonderful conversation. I will stay here for three hours talking with you, to be honest. But, you know, we have some time constraints. So um, so thank you very much for having been with us. Um, and please stay tuned. Um, on the activities of the CSWR, the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative and of Nauseologies. Um, you all can find all this information on the CSWR website, um, including the registration um, link for our next Nauseologies event that will be a month from now on March 23rd. I will have a conversation with anthropologist Jack Hunter on para-anthropology, the anthropology of the paranormal. So thank you all for being with us and having and have a great rest of your day. Thank you so so much and see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye. I appreciate it.
Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.